This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Joe. Joe lived at Mount Cook Village where numerous people died in outdoor accidents within a few years. She shares her story with us. Joe, you've had a long association with Mount Cook. Yes, I went to Mount Cook um, when I was 18, um, which was a lot of years ago. And um, and I went there because um, when... I didn't. I didn't grow up in New Zealand. So, but when we came back, because my, both my parents were climbers, we would go up to Mount Cox. So it was a place that I knew, and also a place I loved. And I decided that um, maybe I'd fit in there um, because I had some quite alternative views on the world. And not growing up in New Zealand, I didn't really fit into the a New Zealand society so much. Did you have fond memories of when your parents were there when you were a child? I loved it. I've got one, some of my first memories ever are of um, we. my parents were caretakers of Unwin Hut, which was the um, climbing hut. And I always remember when I was possibly three, um, we'd arrived there and it was the middle of winter and my dad had had to build a snow tunnel. And he built the snow tunnel and it had a, um, it had a little hole in it and there was a rabbit caught in it and it was full moon. And I remember lying on the on the snow on the ground watching this rabbit, and I was just fascinated. It was just so beautiful. So yes. So you mentioned that you came back when you were eighteen. Did you have a job at Mount Cook? Um, no, when I went there, I didn't. And so I got up there and I found a job as a waitress. But I was only did that for I think two weeks, and then Mount Cook Airlines came and offered me a job. And so I went to work for Mount Cook Airlines. Um, and that was for quite a few years. And then I worked for Alpine Guides, which is the climbing school. However, you saw your role as larger than that mm-hmm. at Mount Cook. So describe that for us. Right. Well, so when I went there, I thought I was going to climb. I thought, oh, I'll follow my parents' footsteps and I'll climb. And my brother was a climber. But I, I got there and I realised that, no, possibly I wasn't a climber. But um, I had a role on the ground, like I, I, I cock. And so my house became the house where everybody sort of congregated to, to eat food and to talk. And, yeah, and that's what my role became. It became a community house, basically. So describe Mount Cook Village and the people in it okay. to us. Sure, so Mount Cook um, in those days was made up of a really eclectic group of people. Um, everybody was there because they they were looking possibly for an alternative lifestyle, but also that their love of the mountains had, had drawn them there. There was the hotel that had um, staff there, but we were quite separate from the hotel, and there was um, the park um, and Alpine Guides and Mount Cook Airlines, and that was basically it up there. Um, and so, yeah, we were drawn there because because of our love of the mountains and wanting to live with nature and, yeah, and just be a bit more alternative. About how many people lived there? About 30 or 40, most of all year. Um, it, it would grow in summer 
when um, we got extra guides in for the guiding season. Um, sometimes in winter, lots of the guides went overseas and it would get really, really small. So there wasn't that. There was probably, I think there was 15 houses, so that was it. It was also a community in which a staggering number of deaths occurred. Mm. Yeah. So tell me about that. Uh, because because the nature of the people that lived there and the fact that um, they everybody was an adventurer and a lot of overseas climbs were done. So it was a great training ground to go either to the Antarctic or the Himalayas or to different parts of the world to climb. And so... Um, with like any adventure sport, a lot of, of accidents do happen and a lot of death was around us. Um, and it was something that we had to really learn to live with, which was really, really hard. But in one year we had 12 deaths and um, it became apparent to quite a few people that maybe time was sort of getting over then and, and people were looking at other places to live because um, lots of people don't deal with death very well. And it was something that you had to learn either to deal with or leave. So some of the deaths you described to me in an earlier conversation seemed so random. Mm, yeah, there was. So can you describe some of those for sure. me? Sure. Um, there was um, deaths through avalanche. So um, actually one of the deaths that was um, quite important to me was a friend of mine who had actually been living with a woman in India and he'd come back and he was the foremost person um, studying avalanches but he was killed in an avalanche and so um, I had to go and tell his partner, the Indian woman, who had only been at Mount Cook for less than a week that this had happened and that was a really, really hard one on me Um, there was also a plane accident where two people had tossed a coin to go up to see who was going to ski patrol and um, a friend of mine, Digger, he had tossed the coin for the heads, went up in the plane, um, hit an air pocket and, and fell out the sky and he was killed. Um, there was deaths obviously in, in Everest and with people like Rob Hall um, and Gary Ball. Um, so there was really some really well-known climbers that died. And your then husband mm-hmm. narrowly escaped mm-hmm. death yeah. in a similar random sort of way. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, we lived in a hut which was in a place called Governor's Bush and there was two German guys that lived beside us and they were going to go climbing that day and he was going to go on the climb. And we got up in the morning and his boots had disappeared. A Kia had taken them and he didn't go but they were both killed as well. Did you have any spiritual beliefs that helped you to withstand these ongoing deaths? Yeah. When I was 15, I had discovered Buddhism. Um, It became a really big part of my life. Um, I'd gone to a transcendental meditation course, and through that I discovered it. And I think I always knew that I believed in and reincarnation and karma and everything that sort of goes with it. So for me, um, I haven't... And I'd grown up in the Pacific Islands, so I'd had no real fear of death. I mean, obviously, you miss people, but to me it was more about being empathetic towards other people who had lost people that they loved. And um, for me, um, it was totally about, you know, their, their time was up and reincarnation would follow. So, yeah, it was a bit different for me and what I believed in. And unlike most Westerners... Um, 
um, you've had a very immediate experience of death. You described an incident when a friend of yours was literally on a slab mm. next to you. Tell us about that. Um, he was on a gurney. He'd had an accident um, in an, into a crevasse, and he was on a gurney. They'd brought him down. He'd um, survived most of the night, and um, they brought him down the next morning, and he was. we used to put them on the gurney inside the first aid room while we waited for the helicopter to take them out. And I'd gone in to see him, and um, he looked like he was asleep. And then all of a sudden, this amazing, I had this amazing experience where his spirit just sort of went right through me and actually made me really shudder. And I realised what had happened, and I looked back, and there was a body there. He had gone. But it was a quite a, it was a really amazing experience, and I hadn't experienced that before. And it happens happened to me a couple of times, but yeah, so um, that was that was pretty profound, and and had a, definitely a big impact on me. Um, yeah, years later, I'd been up in, in Ladakh and um, in India, and I'd been doing some Buddhism study, and um, and I talked to people up there about it, and they said no, that was quite. Quite a usual thing to happen, and yeah, he obviously wanted to say goodbye by doing that. Yeah. So you managed to handle the ongoing stress and grief of these deaths. How did other people in the community manage? Mm. There was um, we had extensive counselling when these things happened, especially the year when everybody died. Like it was, it was just got ridiculous that you know people were just dying, and and not just in New Zealand, but they were all people from Mount Cook and people that when you live in a community like that, you spend so much time with people, and you you eat with them, you go to the pub with them, you share all your stories and and your journeys and. Um, so we would get, we got quite a bit of, of counselling and some people just didn't cope. They had to leave. Um, there was others that I think just put it on hold and maybe later on in their life they had to learn to cope. Um, yeah, so for me it was a, it was definitely a bit different. So I liked to cope with it um, when it was there. And it, to me it was like, you know, you can't ask a person um you can't say, like, okay, someone was doing what they loved and they died because no one wants to die even doing what they loved. You know, if you'd said to them, you know, do you want to die today? They would have said no. But for me it was like, okay, your time is, is over um, and it's, that's your time and your spirit flies free. And, um, yeah, I guess that's how I coped with it. The woman in the village were particularly close mm. and had devised a way to mm. support each other. Tell us about that. Um, so there was quite, there was a really strong group of women, very strong women. And um, when these things happened, we'd quite often sort of get together because we all talked about it, probably better than the, than the men did in those days. But we had um, we had bells up in a place um, outside of a Ferentosh station. And you went up a hill and they brought back three huge bells to signify a woman that had been killed um, Tibetan bells, and they were on a big structure. And we'd go up there, and um, yeah, we'd we'd take books up there that we wanted to read, and quite often drink mushroom tea and have quite spiritual experiences. But it kept us really, really close together, so that we really supported each other. And most of us by that stage had children, so we had to also deal with our children coming to terms with with death as well. So how did the children manage um, coping with death? I think um, 
I think most of the children, we were quite honest to them. You know, we, we used to tell them what had happened. We didn't sort of airbrush it. And we would always involve them in, in any funerals or memorial services. And they became part of it. Like one really good friend of mine who had died, he had spent a lot of time with my children. Um, and I had four daughters. And um, he had slept the night in the tent the night before he died with them. And they'd played a, a game they used to play, it was called The Lion in the Meadow. And that next morning he was killed. And um, that was really hard. So you said you couldn't, you couldn't be dishonest with your children. You had to let them know what was happening. But also make them not scared of it. You know, it's just part of life. And it's a part of life that we mightn't always accept. But it happens. And the sooner children accept it. And because I'd grown up in the Pacific Islands where death is not something to be, ever be afraid of and everybody is involved with death. So for me, I wasn't ever afraid of it and so I wanted my children to be like that. You've mentioned some people who are known to us because they're household mm. names, such as Rob Hall. Mm. And these were personal friends of mm. yours who, yeah. who also died. So mm-hmm. tell us a bit about Gary Ball and Rob mm-hmm. Hall. Um, Gary was a really close friend of mine. I'd worked with him from, or known him from when I was about eight, when I was 18, when I first went to Mount Cook. And um, we spent a lot of time together. He was, yeah, he was a pretty special person to me. And then day that he died, um, I was expecting my fifth child and I, he'd rung me up two days before he left and he'd said to me put the whole day on hold I'm going to spend the day with you and so we had spent the day and we just talked about all our years of knowing each other and all our experiences and and he left and um, and then it was only two or three days later that I got a phone call from another friend saying um, you know Joe are you are you by yourself and I said no and they said um, so, you know make sure someone's with you, we're going to tell you. And I knew that it was Gary had died. And they said, look, we're going to lower him into the crevasse and, and keep me off the phone. And that's what he had done. Um, Rob, I'd, I didn't know Rob so well, but I'd worked with him quite a lot. Um, I did their, I became a high guide food um, person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I'd worked with them as well, doing guiding food and... Yeah, and, and they were just, they were friends. Um, Rob's was pretty tragic, the way it happened, and making that um, decision to stay up there. But, you know, that was his decision, and he knew what was going to happen. And, you know, hypothermia is, is apparently a nice way to die. So if you can just clarify for people who might not know how Gary died mm-hmm. and Rob died, um, how that occurred. Okay, so Gary had had... Um, a few problems with sinuses and he had an operation um, and he knew that he was taking a risk going high again and he suffered from cerebral edema where your brain swells and he died like that. Um, Rob was on the the fatal Everest exhibition where a lot of people were killed and he had a... um, he had one of his clients who obviously couldn't get down the mountain and because he really believed that he had to stay with his client, he did. Then there was another guy called Andy Harris um, who, if you've seen the movie Everest, he featured in that. and He was a really close friend of mine as well and he, um, 
had gone down, had got down the hill, and he went back up to give Rob oxygen, and he, we think, just walked off the mountain and was never found or never seen again. And that was a huge, huge um, hurt for all of us. So how did the climbers themselves deal with the fact that their lives were so precarious? Mm. I think climbers are a really rare breed of people. They they obviously know what the risks are. Um, They're usually really intelligent people. They're fit, they're strong, and majority of accidents happen... As, as pure accidents, they're not anything that, that any of them have caused. You know, an avalanche is something that you have no control of. Um, if you have a client who says that they can arrest, self-arrest, and, and you start to slip and the person can't self-arrest and you go into a crevasse, you can't do anything about that. Planes falling out of the sky. But I think they all had really, really deep spiritual beliefs. And we'd all talk about it, especially when someone had died. And and there was a, a guy who died of a paragliding accident. And I'd had a talk to him oh, maybe a few weeks before he left. And, um, and yeah, and, and just talked about our spiritual beliefs. And we all had really, really strong, strong beliefs, I think. Yeah, very spiritual beliefs. Now, another person or people who are well known to the New Zealand mm-hmm. public whom you knew mm-hmm. was Mark Ingalls and Philip Duell. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your connection with them. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark and Phil had been at Lincoln, and it was their last year, I think, at Lincoln, and they had come up to Mount Cook to work for the summer. So um, they were going to do ski patrol and park work. And they had decided to go climbing. And there was a bit of contention about it because the weather was not going to be great. But they, yeah, they were young and they wanted to to climb, which they did. And then obviously um, they got lost. And then and we started to do things like everybody started to really concentrate and meditate into where they were. And there was a guy up there who really thought he could see them at Middle Peak Hotel, which is what we called where, the, the, where they were. And so we had things like energy rings up on the helipad where we would sit down and really put the energy into it. And the next morning, um, the helicopter went up there and they were there. They were at, at um, Middle Peak Hotel. And so they were um, able to get them some staple supplies down but also um, in doing that there was an Iroquois that went up to try to save them that flipped and it could have killed a lot of people but luckily it didn't but I think the helicopter was pretty damaged um, so that was a quite a quite a strange time, it was a strange time for me because the morning that they were rescued um, was the morning that my brother died on, on a mountain so um, it became a really, a lot of, for a lot of years I had to come to terms with these guys had lived, and um, maybe they should have been up there, maybe they shouldn't. Um, that's up to interpretation. My brother was on a rescue, and he was killed. And I always remember seeing the press, and the top was Mark and Phil are rescued, and the bottom half of it was Steve Taylor dies in avalanche. So that was probably the hardest um, death for me. Not the fact that it was death, but just because of I was a bit angry. And I had to deal with their anger. And, and I really liked Mark and Phil, and, um, and I still do. But I did, internally, I did, had to deal with some anger over that death. It wasn't as easy as others had been for me. Next time we talk, we'll talk more fully mm. about your brother's death. 
So here you are in a village with five children Mm -hmm. dealing with this incredible amount of death. At what point did it become too much and you decided to go? Mm -hmm. Um, I think after my brother's death, Things started to change me, and not only that, my ex-husband's um, brother um, brother had was killed on the same day as my brother, and they were also friends, and um, they were both going to be at the park for that Christmas, and they'd worked together before, and so that happened, and I stayed at Mount Cook for quite a few years after that, but I think it became apparent that at some stage. I would need to leave and sort this out. And I was at a, we were at a, a memorial service up at the side of the Kiwi, I think it was Takahi, and I was sitting on a pole and I had my legs on Gary Ball's shoulder. And I, and I, Gary turned around and he said to me, Joe, one day we're going to get old and this isn't going to happen to us anymore. People are going to get killed and we're not going to know who they are. And of course, it was only a year later, or not even a year later, that he was killed. And so there was a few things, yeah, it was sort of, yeah, I think it was just time for me to go. And Mount Cook was changing a lot. There was a lot of people who had decided to leave and um, go to Wanaka or Twizel or Littleton. So it was a bit of a mass exodus. Now, family members of people who had died would also come to mm. Mount Cook. Yeah. So what was it like dealing with their trauma? Mm. It's a really hard thing. Um, like... <laughs> Through death like that and with your spiritual beliefs, which you know that not everybody has, you become incredibly empathetic. You know what these people are going through. You know that there's times when people that you really love die that you don't want anybody around. There's times that you do want people around. And I think by having those people come to Mount Cook and understand the spiritualness of Mount Cook Village and the place it was, I think it was easier for them to actually understand. And that's going back to this thing there, you know, they're doing, they, they were doing what they loved when they died, which is all very well. But I think it was more the aesthetics of the place. You know, it, it is so beautiful. And to be surrounded by those mountains and the valleys, which were sometimes full of lupins, they were sometimes gold, they were sometimes white, depending on the season. But the whole village would embrace those people when we would make sure that they did understand and that we all reached out to them. And, and most often it was, good. it was a good thing. Yeah. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your truly remarkable story with us of your experiences at Mount Cook. We'll talk again, as I said, about your brother. Mm-hmm. He died at McKinnon Pass, where he was working as a dock hut mm-hmm. warden. Yeah. And he died attempting to rescue trampers yes, who did. had not taken his advice. Yeah. And so we'll yeah. talk more. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to The Final Curtain, ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Café Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Café Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. 
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.